Welcome to episode 185 of the Cyber Law Podcast, a companion to yesterday's episode 184, where we did a news roundup that just uh, went on and on and on. Um, uh, so uh, for those who uh, made it through that, here's a bonus episode uh, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we are usually lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm Stuart Baker, and I'll be uh, interviewing Martin Mikos, uh, who's the CEO of Hacker. One, a, a uh, company notable for its uh, administration of bug bounty programs. Uh, I, and I, uh, uh, first, Martin, welcome. Thank you, Stuart. Happy uh, to be here. I'm glad you're here. I uh, because uh, uh, I keep hearing about bug bounties. I they sound like a great idea, but there has to be something more complicated than just offering people money to hack you. So uh, what I'd like uh, to do is begin by uh, what is the basic value proposition behind a bug bounty program? The value proposition is overwhelmingly strong. One of the biggest risks any organization faces today is the risk of data breach. Right. And we see every week a new breach being announced. Uh, to avert the data breaches, you must fix the security vulnerabilities you have in your software. Okay, that's doable. But how do you find them and identify right. them? And it has been shown now that the best finders are people outside of your organization who are unbiased, unlimited, creative, and who are not uh, on your payroll, who are not who have no ownership bias, who are not blind to what they created themselves. So you need external eyes to find your vulnerabilities. And we have an unbeatable army of over 100,000 white hat hackers who are ready to hack you at any moment, so but those, only on your invitation. Okay, so the, 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 and, and the idea is you, you pay them if they find a serious vulnerability, essentially. Correct. We pay them also for less serious ones, but we pay based on the severity. The biggest vulnerabilities can can be paid tens of thousands for, and the smallest ones are worth maybe $100. So when, um, if I'm a, an institution or maybe a government agency, since there are a lot of government agencies that listen to this uh, podcast, uh, um, obviously there's some value in getting uh, uh, this sort of information. Uh, I would have thought uh, that agencies worry, well, suppose they hack me and then they do something I didn't expect or that they weren't supposed to. How do I know they uh, are um, truly white hat hackers? Uh, and uh, how do I know they'll stay within boundaries that I'm comfortable with as opposed to going straight for my top secret uh, uh, files? That's a very good question. It's the, the first question they ask. And the Pentagon who who ran Hack the Pentagon one and a half years ago. They asked this question from us as we got going, but the programs have been very, very successful. And the question is similar to asking, how do I know that the fire brigade will actually put out the fire and not create more fire? Mm -hmm. And you realize you have an institutional trust in them. Right. And we have built institutional trust in our community because we track the performance of every single hacker. We know how good they are, what they've filed, what they've submitted, how they communicate, where they are from. We know all of this, and they've built a public persona around their uh, accomplishments. So you do reputation management, essentially. You're, you're like an, an eBay for hackers. 
Exactly. And we have their full reputation score. And for them, even if there might be an occasional moment where there might be an attraction to do something illegal or immoral, they have their whole social profile at stake. Yes. Because we know everything they do. And it's not worth it for a single bug. And the more they work, the more they build their reputation, the more they stick to the rules. And they, they all behave well. We have not had, we've had small infractions that we've dealt with quickly, but we've hadn't had any serious uh, situations. So your business model is, if I understand it, is to say to companies that are dipping their toe into uh, bug bounties, uh, uh, we can tell you how to run the program. We can bring to bear a whole bunch of people who are already trusted, uh, not just not to hack you in a black hat way, but whose reputation we can I uh, uh, tell you so that when they report a bug, you've got a pretty good idea it's a serious one because this is somebody who's found serious bugs in the past. Correct. Like I said, we have over 100,000 hackers in our network. We call them hackers, but they could be security researchers, experts, whatever. But what we bring to you is just some of the top 100 or top 1,000 who we know very well. Oh, so you you actually might restrict mm. the uh, uh, the bounty to a, a particular we subgroup of your network. We can network. do that, yes. So <clears throat> we're known for bug bounty programs, but the full answer is we do anything that's called hacker-powered security. So we can bring to you a program where we don't pay bounties. It's just a vulnerability disclosure policy, Mm -hmm. which is a very good way to start. We can run uh, time-boxed programs. Let me me stop you there. Vulnerability Mm -hmm. disclosure program is where you simply uh, set up a website and say, if you find a vulnerability in our product or in our network, you can disclose it here and we will have a civil discussion with you. Presumably you have to give people an assurance you won't sue them. Um, so there's a, that's sort of the, the gateway drug for this is that you just say, at least I ought to take these reports in a, um, a, a, a formal and uh, coordinated way, because otherwise I'm going to get an email from somebody or somebody uh, with a, a title that sounds plausible is going to get an email and they're going to be told, I'm going to disclose this in 90 days if you don't right. act. And they may not even be checking their mail. They may not still work for the company. It may not be their responsibility. Uh, and the idea is you don't want to be that company. Exactly. And that is why the DOJ is recommending vulnerability disclosure policies to everybody. FTC is recommending it. NIST are recommending it. All the, the uh, leading agencies are recommending it to both agencies and companies uh, all over the world and in the U.S. And who knows? It may even become a mandated part of cyber, cyber hygiene. You can see how that, how, how that would be the case. Yeah. On the other hand, um, are they also saying – that part of what you ought to do is assure the folks who write in to tell you they found a uh, uh, a bug in your system that they won't be sued? Correct, and that is what we provide. We provide the legal framework. So every hacker who is engaged on our platform has signed terms and conditions to agree to, to follow all the rules we set, and every organization who is our customer has correspondingly agreed not to legally pursue hackers who follow the rules. So we have a construct that makes both sides uh, comfortable. They can trust that it will work. And if needed, we will step in, uh, step in and, and help correct this. So I would have thought that, I mean, if, if I 
understand how these programs work. Yes, of course, you want to have a disclosure program and you want to give people certainty that you're not going to sue them unless they do something they shouldn't do, right? Uh, um, if they uh, if they hack your system and extract files about individuals yeah. or about your intellectual property, I'm not sure I want to give them an assurance I won't sue them. Correct, and the, but it's a conditional assurance both ways. Okay. You're saying, I will not pursue you as long as you follow the rules, and the, the hacker will say, I will follow the rules as long as you respect me. And this is just for disclosure, right? You that say, is just yeah, for like, disclosure, a, 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 and or for bounties, whichever it is, wh- okay. whatever, it, irrespective of whether there's a, a reward paid or not. But there's a legal construct that, that gives both sides assurance that they are safe. Suppose I'm, uh, you know, the uh, um, Federal Communications Commission, and I want to do a disclosure program. Right. Um, a, what problems am I going to encounter? Uh, it, uh, obviously, I have to figure out what the scope of my promises are to people. I have to have what a point of contact, somebody who actually reads yeah. all the emails. Yeah. Um, what other uh, what what reasons are there to bring in a company to do that? Well, bringing in a, a vendor like HackerOne or somebody else will reduce the need for your own headcount to do it. And the, the, uh, the okay. money you save in headcount is much bigger than what you would pay the vendor. So it will always make sense. And you also get access to the full social profile we have of the hackers. So when the reports come in, you can see from whom it is and how good and how accomplished such hacker is. So you get a much better picture from the start of, of of the the potential, the likely value of the yeah, because of I think when, if you publish your website or or, or, or uh, your email address on the internet, you're going to get some interesting mail, uh, including you know opportunities to extract twenty million dollars from Nigeria. Uh, yes, there are uh, a lot of hopeful <laughs> hopeful hackers out there, and the youngest ones are teenage boys and girls who will send you in the hope of getting something. And and what we can provide is the assurance that that won't happen. We, we talk a lot about signal-to-noise ratio in our platform, meaning of all the reports we process, and we processed hundreds of thousands of them, how many are truly valid for the end customer. And we now have software and services that will filter out all the noise so we can deliver to you pure signal, meaning only relevant reports. And as a customer, you can determine the threshold for what's relevant, how serious they need to be. And that's how you make sure you get exactly what you can deal with. The most severe ones you should always receive as the highest priority. Right. No, that, that Ed, I, makes sense. What, from the point of view of the hackers who are doing disclosure, what liability are they most worried about? Do you uh, you must hear from them that uh, um, I want to make sure I'm not going to be uh, sued or chased or prosecuted under one law or another? And uh, you know, there's there's three or four that that could be brought. Uh, there's the uh, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, of course, right. is most That's obvious. The most uh, obvious one. Uh, Sometimes Digital Millennium Copyright Act and yep. the yeah. circumvention provisions. Uh, I suppose there could be, um, uh, and I've been involved in a case where uh, a security researcher found serious holes in a product and was sued for libel uh, right. for saying yeah. so. Yeah. Um, a, what what are people most worried about? What do they insist on before they're going to participate in the program? Those are exactly the, the laws that they worry about, and, and we make sure that the companies agree not to pursue 
a hacker who follows the rules. Of right. course, there has to be mutual trust. But it has worked very well. And, and let's remember here that the whole black side of things, the criminal side of things, is completely different. Yes. And criminal hackers are not waiting for anybody to invite you. Yeah. They will. They are already hacking you. So the people who sign up with our platform are by definition already good guys. They are white hats. They have good intent. They want to do the best, and they just want to make sure that they are not risking something. So tell me who are the people who sign up for this program can can you give me a sense of somebody who uh, is there a career path here are uh, are these 14 uh, year olds still living at home or uh, uh, can you make a living doing this at the age of 35 all all of the above given that we have over 140,000 hackers signed up. Right. Not that all of them have been successful. I mean, it's very difficult to get to a level of success, but yet it's a giant community already, and we have all walks of life, all types of people. We have a lot of teenage boys who start hacking when they're 12, 13, 14, 15, and they learn, and by 20, they're really good. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of professionals who work for security companies and maintain their professional skill by doing this in their spare time. We have academics for whom it's an academic uh, pursuit. And we have those in all of these groups who are building a career. Like we have fantastic experts from all over the world who ask us for recommendation letters to the top universities in the world because they have nothing else to show. But a recommendation letter for us carries a lot of weight with MIT or some other school. So you find all of this. The the thing you don't find, which we are trying to correct and fix, is very few women. Right. When we ask our hackers what gender they are, many choose not to respond to the question, but only 2% self-identify as women. So it's an extremely low percentage. So we take great care to make this profession and this pursuit attractive and and okay for women we showcase female hackers to show that it's it's okay it's acceptable it's it's a great thing to do and it's changing but it will take time to to change that kind of kind of makes me wonder about the whole narrative that says silicon valley is hostile to women because they have underrepresentation of women i mean you don't have a corporate uh, workplace for people to feel excluded from. They can just sign up and participate yeah, or not. Yeah, this is all over the world. Uh, and and, and that, so it's, it, yeah. there's, there's an element of choice or talent or something is. That, is. Uh, that is distinguishing between girl hackers and boy hackers. I think so. I mean, in, in the company, in HackerOne, the company, in our San Francisco office, we have more female software developers than male. Right. And we're female executives. So we're showing as a company all the right role models. But the hacking... Uh, pursuit is somehow not yet something that that girls and women uh, will naturally go and do. We hope to change it. Not that it has to be 50-50. We just want to make sure that nobody feels uninvited. Everybody must feel it's an opportunity for them if they are so inclined. Well, you know, I I think an invitation to spend all night in your parents' basement staring at a screen is an invitation that uh, many well-adjusted girls would cheerfully turn down. <laughs> yes, yeah, so are you hinting that the, the hackers are maladjusted? I think I am, yes. <laughs> There's something to this. We see a lot of hackers who come to us and say, uh, my life was in shambles, it had no meaning, uh, nobody understood me, 
I didn't know what to do with my life. But now I found meaning. Not only are you paying me for my work, but I finally know that my knowledge is valuable. And recognition from their peers. They're on a leaderboard. Uh, They they are better at getting into one particular system than anybody else in the world. Uh, Yes, I know. I I, I can see that that uh, and it's, you know. Uh, a socially valuable way to recognize that, whereas 30 years ago, the only way you were going to get recognized is if you actually hacked somebody and uh, carried out an exploit against them. True, and that's not needed anymore. That, that's why we sometimes look back at the Scout movement, which Robert Baden-Powell started 110 years ago, where he saw young people idling, and he felt if he doesn't give them something useful to do, they'll be some, do something useless or something dangerous. So he organized camps, he gave them badges, he asked them to self-organize, he yeah. asked them to do a good deed every day, and we do the same in yeah. the digital world. Oh, it's, it's, it's midnight bas- basketball for the 21st <laughs> yes. century. I, I, yeah. uh, I like I this. So, so um, okay, let's, let's move it on to somebody says, okay, I've had a disclosure program. Now I want to go for bounties. What kinds of decisions do you have to make about having that program? When you, when you sit down with somebody who's who's just brand new to this, let's suppose that it was that, uh, Pentagon two years ago. Right. Uh, what kinds of issues do they have to struggle with that uh, you, um, see you time and again? Yeah. Well, if you look at the Pentagon or General Motors, Starbucks, uh, other companies, Uber, Airbnb, it starts with top management approval and blessing because it is mentally a shift when you start saying we acknowledge we have vulnerabilities and we want to hear about them. Right. If, if you have a very macho corporate culture, you may not be ready to even ask the question. So you need the top management to be on board with it. That's number one. Num- and, 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 and partly, I suppose, because um, all of these bug bounties are going to be paid to people who have embarrassed the chief information security officer and his staff. No, those, that's a small, small minority. But they are, of course, worried about the embarrassment. Yes. So you must have the, the civic courage to say, I do want to hear about the vulnerabilities. And that must come from the top. And do you, uh, so when you hear about them, it's one thing to hear about them. It's another yeah. thing to acknowledge them publicly. What do you recommend companies do when they get a valid bug that they're going to pay out? They don't need to talk about it publicly at all. They need to thank the hacker the sooner the better and just say, thank you, you're wonderful. Thank you for working so hard on this. We are exploring it. We'll come back to you soon with our response. And that's when the second key part kicks in, which is how do you fix them? Yes. So before a company embarks on this, they must make sure they have an ability to fix their software. Many organizations rely on third-party software that was developed by contractors and others. So you must think through how you will fix it when you find it. Now, some companies, therefore, do not do bug bounty programs because they can't fix it. That is a really bad situation because so if you a, can't so, fix so, uh, your software, you are you have a much bigger problem. At so hand. this is, as as I think about it, this this is quite awkward. Somebody demonstrates they can hack your system because of a Microsoft vulnerability. Right. Uh, um, a, you can't fix Microsoft easily. Okay, I didn't, yes, with third party, I didn't really mean that. The the Microsofts of the world are now in such great shape. They are okay, pioneers. Right. You don't have the problem. If you have the problem, you did not apply a patch. Right. But I mean, you have outsourced development of your 
HR application to a yes. third-party contractor, and they need to come in and fix, or you have to somebody to fix. So, so that's an important. You're, you're patching struts, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So you need to have people to do. That's the second one. And then the third question is just what's the scope of the program? You can set the rules. You say this web application is in scope. This one is out of scope. The mobile application is in scope or out of scope, and you can change it over time. And the purpose of that is partly, I suppose, to make sure that uh, um, the reports are not overwhelming in number and that you're you're starting uh, with something that you know you can fix. Yeah. And then – you just expand the scope as you go? Over time, yes. And you may have an old piece of software that you will deprecate in a year. So you say, no need to fix it Don't anymore. Bother with Don't that. bother. So that's why you, you write your program page, <clears throat> and every, every program will have its own page, and the hackers will read it to get guidance on where to hack and how to hack. And that's how the, the collaboration ensues between the hackers and the programs, i.e. The, the customers. Are there fights over what's in scope and what's out, out of scope, or at least of, uh, arguments about it? Of course. This is a very exact science, but the words are never completely exact, right. so they can argue about all kinds of things. We step in and we mediate, and we know that the real heroes are always the hackers. They spend time voluntarily without knowing whether they will get paid. So you always are on the side of rewarding them if it's an un- uncertain situation. Not that it always happens. We do have situations where hackers are disappointed with programs for mm-hmm. how they interpret their rules. So we actively work on the the interpretation every day. There are small things happening. But they can be resolved, and and over time, most people are happy. But, of course, every now and then there's something where they disagree. And, I, you know, so much of... Um, computer insecurity these days features uh, uh, actors who have set up long-time residence in your network and are moving laterally through the network. Uh, right. uh, having a bug bounty program that allows that, that puts that in scope really lets hackers deep into your network, doesn't it? The rules in every program is the moment you break in, you stop there okay. and you report how far you. So go. it is mostly about. Protecting the perimeter. Well, it depends on the program. Sometimes you go deeper, but, but there are clear rules that you must not take data, you yeah. must not break anything, and the hackers are very good at following those rules, so they stop at the right point. There have been a few uh, cases of disagreement around this, but there are so few, considering that only on our platform, we have, our customers have found and fixed 55,000 vulnerabilities, valid ones, right. and we have seen maybe a handful of, of conflicts or disagreements. So in in percentage of the total volume, it's practically not. How much um, in the way of bounties would you say uh, people pay? How do you how do you set up a mechanism that says I'm going to pay a thousand dollars or forty thousand dollars or a hundred thousand um, dollars? How do, how does that decision get made? Our power users will make those decisions themselves, those who have been running programs for years. New customers typically follow our recommendation. Mm-hmm. Uh, severity of the, of the vulnerability is the major influence on the price. And then companies will choose their own ambition level because it turns out that financially, and this is interesting for CFOs, in the beginning, you pay lower prices for your bounties. And you As, find a lot of stuff because you, you find a lot of because, stuff. Because you – You've never fixed all yeah, of the little exactly. problems. Right. But when the popcorn bag stops popping, 
then you know that you are having just a few remaining bugs. So you increase the price successively, which means that the, the maximum price you offer is a measurement of your overall security. Yes. Okay. So why does Google offer 250000 for certain vulnerabilities in Chrome and Chromebook? Because they are so certain there aren't many. Right. And the final ones they do want to find. So you start at just a hundred dollars, a few hundred dollars. Over time, as your security posture increases and you are stronger, you know you are safe, you increase the prices to keep the hackers excited. Yes, okay. So what does this, uh, let's, let's suppose I'm uh, a, a law firm with um, a thousand employees and I wanted to set up a, a, a program. Um, what would I expect it to cost? The, to run a quick test, a challenge, which is a time-bound thing, you pay 20000 30000 and you get excellent results. You can get already for that you may get 20 to 30, 40 valid vulnerabilities that they will find. Then if you operate an annual program, I would ask you about your attack surface. How mm-hmm. many web domains? How complex are they? How many mobile apps? How many APIs? What kind of IoT devices might you have, and so on. And the, it is the size and complexity of the attack surface that determines it. Is it, is it a substitute if, if if people believe they need to do penetration testing every year? Yeah. Uh, is um a, is a bug bounty essentially a substitute for uh, hiring a, a penetration testing uh, firm? Penetration test is great, but it's insufficient. Uh, technology is becoming continuous. We de- deploy software continuously today, but pen tests are point in time. Yes. So you say, how do you make a penetration test continuous? Well, that is a bug bounty problem. Okay. So yes, uh, we we have many customers who are leaving cutting out half of their pen tests and doing bug bounty programs instead with better results faster. So you mentioned that <clears throat> DOD had hacked the Pentagon. Um, yeah, hacked the Army, hacked the Air Force. Right. And there are more coming. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, what other agencies are doing this uh, th- that you can talk about? Uh, and uh, uh, what brings them in? What what do they worry about as government agencies that are unique to uh, uh, to bug bounty programs? Uh, we have we signed up GSA and 18F in the spring, okay. so they are our customers. A few others run their own programs. Uh, we talked to a number of them. They all see the value of it, and they see the example of the Pentagon. They see the recommendation of the DOJ and so on. Uh, they have a worry about how to fix the vulnerabilities when found yes. because the, the agencies have used third-party contractors to build the majority of their software. So they must call up those contractors and say, hey, that software you built for us 10 years ago, you need to be ready to fix it now as we turn on the bug Which is program. really going to be painful. That, but if they that, can't that's, fix it, then, then, but then it's also yes, painful. <laughs> inability to fix it is much worse. Yes. So so they have to take that that decision. And and after that, it actually has worked out wonderfully. And in our observation, the, the federal agencies are ahead of the crowd. The Pentagon is one of our most progressive customers. Do, ahead of many Fortune 100. Do you think agencies, when they're buying software products or integration, uh, need to include a clause that says, by the way, you're going to have to fix this in response to... Of course. Yeah. Of course. We should have done it all along. Right. And we will soon learn that software developed before the world got so connected needs to be deprecated. It wasn't built for a connected world. Yeah. And we had it with the Y2K problem. We said software not built for handling the year 2000 needs to be deprecated. 
we need to face a similar choice now with right. when it and, comes and to security. And the notion that it's air-gapped, is, uh, as the South Koreans and the U.S. government recently discovered, always wrong, right? It's, air gapping is good, but it's not perfect. It, it never, right. it never, because yeah. it, it, well, it's never perfect. Uh, there's yeah, always, exactly. uh, there's yeah. always a connection. Yeah. But there is nothing such as 100% security. It's, there's only more security today than you had yesterday. And in a way, you don't need to be completely secure. You just have to be faster than the rest in becoming secure. And then you're safe. Yes. So it's a race. Safe enough. It's a race against I I think if the, if a government wants to get in, Mm -hmm. they will keep knocking until they get in. They, they, even, even if your uh, security is better than some other agencies. Yes. But then of course you, you have methods for detecting intrusions and you deal with that. So a full, uh, Security posture includes not just the preventive side, which we represent, but also the real-time threat detection and threat response. And when you apply all of those, you get to a very, very high degree of security. All right. Well, this is is terrific. Uh, Before we finish up, I always ask our uh, guests if they have any papers, speeches, other things they'd like our listeners to know about that if they want to follow up on this or catch you uh, giving a talk, uh, uh, any any uh, additional resources you want to point people toward? Uh, I would recommend reading, downloading and reading the Department of Justice's vulnerability, uh, framework for vulnerability disclosure policies. If you Google for those words, you'll find it and you can download it. It's a beautiful text, very practical for anybody who's thinking about this. And this has been authored by the DOJ. Which part of DOJ? Was this the the computer crime and intellectual property section? Do you know? Uh, Now you're asking me a difficult question. I want to give them credit. Give me a second. The computer crime and intellectual property section. Yes. Okay. Well, I Uh, abuse them regularly about uh, uh, their Mm. uh, reluctance to allow uh, uh, greater freedom for people to explore uh, hackers outside their network. Uh, Right. So I'm glad to give them credit for having produced a uh, really good uh, disclosure document. Uh, They did. All right. Uh, Thanks to Martin Mikos. Uh, This has been episode 185 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, If you have a guest to suggest, uh, please send us a uh, note at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. And if they come on the program, we will give you, uh, as we're going to give Martin, a uh, uh, highly coveted uh, Cyber Law Podcast mug uh, to hold your coffee in. And if we can ever scrape together the money, uh, we um, we may start doing Stuart Baker bobbleheads. Uh, but uh, I'm daunted by the cost. Uh, coming up, we've got uh, Mike Solmeyer of the Belfer Center. We've got Chris Painter, um, uh, former State Department cyber diplomat, uh, among other guests. And on November 7, mark your calendars. You'll get to see us in person talking about uh, election cybersecurity on Election Day at our DuPont Circle offices. So please register on the events page at steptoe.com and we hope to see you there uh, and uh, on the air as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 